If you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. Mark 10, 17 through 22. 16 years ago, almost same month of June, Danielle and I loaded up a U-Haul, left Birmingham to head to New Orleans to start a new uh, school program there at the seminary. And we moved into on-campus apartment housing there. We had this one-bedroom apartment, and it was sort of a busy season in the life of hurricane season there. And so a couple that had done their master's there had been on campus for years. They sort of took us under their wing and said, one of the things that you might want to think about is having some type of storage container that if there's a mandatory evacuation of New Orleans and of the seminary, that you're able to take your essentials with you and load them up. And whether you go back home or wherever you're going, uh, you need to kind of think through last minute what can't stay behind. And so I remember us having this sort of exercise, a sobering exercise in a lot of ways to think, what do I have to take with me? Like, really, what is essential? What defines me. What is, and I remember Danielle went through the apartment. She got a bunch of stuff. I do the same thing, and so she has all of our wedding pictures. They're this nice kind of container, and she puts them in there, and we had a VHS wedding tape, and she puts it in there, and I had a box set of the Rocky movies that I put in there, and so you laugh at that. I'm, I'm joking. I, it was uh, Rocky 1 through 4. I left behind Rocky 5. I mean, it just, it's not in the canon of Rocky movies. But uh, so, I mean, you can imagine the types of things you would put in there. There are things like, especially 16 years ago, we weren't such a digitized culture. So we had to put our insurance documents in there. Birth certificate goes in there. Social security cards go in there. I mean, just all those kinds of things. Childhood pictures go in there. There are a few mementos and those kinds of things of marriage, and, and so they all go in there, and, and there was one time, and we had, to, we had to evacuate several times, but there was one time we were really, really glad that uh, we had some of those things with us, but that, that blue storage container in, in so many ways has, for much of my life as a husband and as a parent, it sort of stood it's sort of, you know, been this kind of pressing metaphor. Who am I? What, what defines me? What am I not willing to, to leave behind? If you were to look into that box, I mean, you, you would find things that described who we are and what we value in that box, and there's nothing wrong with what was in that storage container, but there is a sense in which when we answer the question, what can we not leave behind, it shows where we find our worth, where we find our identity. And some of those things are good things that we make ultimate things, that there are times where God calls us to relinquish those in the pursuit of following Him, in the pursuit of discipleship 2,000 years before I'm having to put into a storage container what goes and what stays behind, Jesus asks a question. It's, it's a very pressing question that, that we know in this section of Scripture as Jesus is in this conversation with this person that we know is the rich young ruler. And he asked them, he asked him, what are you not willing to leave behind? Mark chapter 10 tells us the story that might be familiar to many of you. It starts in verse 17, this encounter between Jesus and this man who comes with this inquiry. 
that is answered in a very direct way. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, verse 19, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, this man says to Jesus, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I heard Billy Graham preach a, a sermon one time on this passage here, and he sort of memorably said that, that here we meet a young man who came with the right question, directed to the right person, who heard the right answer, but ultimately he made the wrong decision. It comes after a very familiar encounter uh, right before this where Jesus is welcoming the little children. The disciples are sort of holding them back, and you have a portrait of contrast that Mark gives us. You have the picture of this childlike faith in contrast to this self-righteous person who is not willing to have, what, a childlike faith in the call of Christ. So you have this contrast between the little children and here, this rich young ruler. Now, it's interesting when you look at Mark's gospel, where do you see rich young ruler? Well, you don't. You have to take Matthew's gospel. You have to take Luke's gospel. You take them in comparison to one another. And then we have the identity of the rich young ruler. In verse 17, we just know him as a man who comes to Jesus. But Matthew 19 tells us that he was young. Luke chapter 18 tells us he's a ruler. Each of the gospel accounts tell us what verse 22 tells us in Mark 10. That he had great possessions and he was not willing to relinquish those possessions for the call of Christ upon his life. He's a ruler. What does that mean? It very well may be that he's a ruler in the synagogue. There's some scholars that speculate maybe he's a member of the Sanhedrin. But all of this to say, if you were to rewind 2,000 years ago and you want to say prestige, check it off. He's got it. Power, check it off. He's got it. Position, check it off. He's got it. Great possessions, check it off. He's got it. This is a man that is going places. This is a man who knows how to win friends influence people. Here is a person who has made something out of his life, and you say, I don't know anybody like that. Well, yes, you do. We're all like that in some respects. The rich young ruler is alive and well in our culture, alive and well in our own heart. You, you know her. I mean, she's got the degrees on the wall that show significance and show achievement. You know him, he's climbed to the top of the corporate ladder, he's got the view, the accolades. But yet, with all of that success, he still aches for significance. With all that he's achieved, he, he, there's, there's still this restless ache in his heart. It, it, he, he's gotten everything that he's ever dreamed to get, but at the same point, he, he still can't satisfy that, that hungry heart. I mean, he's a living embodiment. You remember, you remember the song that Bono sung uh, decades ago, that here we have a person who still hasn't found what he's looking for. 
1,600 years ago, there was a uh, bishop in North Africa, the town of Hippo, his name was St. Augustine. Augustine wrote what we know to be really one of the first biographies. It's called Confessions. The introduction to that, he says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Here, Here is a restless heart who's done everything that he could but it's not enough. So we ask Jesus a, a very uh, important question in, in, in many ways. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And notice how Jesus answers this. It reminds me of that commercial. You remember it? It's got to be 10 years ago, maybe even more recent than that. You, you have this picture of a ball field, and there's a son, and there's his dad, and it shows them looking at, at, the, at the green grass of Wrigley Field, and then there's this voiceover narration that says, uh, two tickets to Wrigley Field, $100. Two hot dogs, two Cokes, $20. Shows them catching the sun, catching a foul ball, $90 to catch a foul ball. A father and a son making a memory that lasts a lifetime, priceless. You remember the tagline, some things money just can't buy for everything else in life, there is MasterCard. Here's the rich young ruler who's going to learn a lesson that I hope you already have learned, but all of us need to be reminded of. Here's the rich young ruler who realizes, but I hope everyone watching via live stream realizes, but needs to be reminded of. Some things in life can't be bought. Do you want to find true, lasting joy. It's not for sale. You, you want to find true, lasting love. I mean, you don't, have to, you don't have to be a fan of the Beatles. No, you can't buy me love. I mean, this is the end. There's no price tag on love. True security. The house that was your dream house. It's not perfect. And you realize it. The car that, that, once you got the car, you realized, that's it. That's going to satisfy that ache. But then you get it, and it doesn't. You actually get to go on the trip and get to do the vacation. But you come back, and there's a sense of this, it didn't satisfy. Some things in life, money can't buy. This man has all that the world offers, but here we discover he truly has nothing of eternal value. So we asked Jesus, verse 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's an interesting back and forth. Have you ever thought of this? It's sort of cryptic, isn't it? The way that Jesus says, well, why are you calling me good? Well, especially in an Alabama type of society, especially down south, I mean, we're used to, good day, sir, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so there's nothing about this that seems so strange. You've got to understand in first century Judaism, the only time the adjective good was used was for God himself. And so this rich young ruler comes, and what is he trying to do? He's trying to butter up Jesus. He's trying to flatter Jesus. And so Jesus redirects his question by saying, why do you call me good? There's only one that is good. Not in the, and what is so interesting about this is Jesus has a veiled omission of his divinity right here to this rich young ruler, but he misses it completely. He, he doesn't know who he's standing before. 
Jesus answers this question by saying, you want to know what it is to inherit eternal life? Well, have you kept the commandments? Now, he doesn't go through, did you notice this? He, he doesn't go through all ten commandments in order here. There, there's sort of this potpourri of commandments that he gives to this rich young ruler. It's the second half of the ten commandments. It's, it's what many scholars would call the second table. If the first four are vertical, you have no gods other than me, then you get to love your father and your mother, and what have you done? You've moved to the horizontal part of the Ten Commandments. How do you live in relationship with friends and family members? And so Jesus, not in any particular order, says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not bear false witness, don't defraud someone, honor your father and your mother. And he goes down the list, and you can almost see this rich young ruler smile in smug satisfaction. Check. Check. I haven't committed adultery. Got it. I'm not bearing false witness. Got it. Never killed someone. Got it. He says in verse 20, Teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 3. Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul says. The tribe of Benjamin, as of the law, blameless. Here's a man who says, I have kept the letter of the law, I am a good, upstanding, religious person. And then Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, loved him. Boy, it's easy to miss this. It's almost as if Jesus has spiritual x-ray glasses. He's just looking right into the heart of this rich young ruler. He, he looks past the veneer of the religiosity of this man, and he looks to the heart, and he's able to see in the heart while he's kept the law, while he's done everything outwardly to be right with God. It's not enough because ultimately he has a God above God in his life, which is his possessions. And Jesus is able to see this. Now the word love here, you know this, in the original language of the New Testament, there are various words that are translated with the one word love in English. This word right here is agape. You know that that is selfless, sacrificial love. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, we're tracking with the love of Jesus. And consistently, the narrative that Mark is saying is Jesus reaches out to the outcast. Paralyzed, he's coming for you. Leper, his love is coming for you. Poor, his love is coming for you. Blind, his love is coming for you. The margins, that's where Jesus is in Mark's gospel. The hurting, that's where Jesus is in Mark's gospel. What is so interesting about Mark's gospel is not only does Jesus' love extend to the margins, but it extends to the very person that's at the center of success the center of the religious story. It isn't that Jesus just comes for the put out, but he comes for the put together. It isn't that he just comes for the rich, but I mean for the poor, but he comes for the rich also. So his love extends to those who have no claim of righteousness, and it comes to the love, and his love comes to those who are proud in their self-righteousness. I think sometimes the church has a harder time <laughs> with the rich young ruler than it does with those on the fringes. So, sometimes we, we, we draw a line 
around the love of Jesus, but the love of Jesus goes not only to that person who can't quite get off the, the bottom of the ladder, but to the person who's gotten to the top of the ladder. His love is coming for them because each of those individuals, regardless of past, regardless of socioeconomic level, regardless of religious involvement, we all are sinners who need a Savior here. So Jesus says to this man, you lack one thing, Love me with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. He doesn't say that. He says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven because then you can come and follow me. There's two words in verse 22 that, that sum up. They're, they're two powerful words, disheartened and sorrowful. Mark tells us he's sparse in his description. But in these two words, he tells us everything because what he is saying is, is this man gives up eternal life because his earthly goods have become a God that he will not let his grip away from. That he is breaking the first commandment because his true security, his true identity is in his possessions and Jesus is calling him on this and telling him to repent, to relinquish, and to come and follow me. What Jesus is doing, he's saying, let, let me see, let me see your container. Let me see where your worth is, where your identity is. This has been a perplexing passage. I mean, do you feel it? I mean, when I preach this passage, you just, I, I want to skip this passage. Living in America in 2020, I mean, what? No, no, no preacher wants to really talk about money. Like, what, what does this mean? Are, are you supposed to follow the path of Francis of Assisi? You remember Francis of Assisi? 13th century. He's a son of a wealthy silk merchant. He hears the call of the gospel, sells everything he has starts what's called the Franciscan movement that's devoted wholly to the ministry to the poor. We live in a culture of tremendous affluence, tremendous wealth. What does this mean for you? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for our culture right here? Well, we need to take an imbalance here. Certainly when we're looking in the Old Testament, we see great men and women of faith who have tremendous wealth. We, we need to see that. It's not condemned. Job's not condemned for his wealth. It's a sign of his righteousness. Abraham is a person of tremendous wealth. We see that throughout Scripture. He's in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You turn to the New Testament. You have someone like Joseph of Arimathea. You have Lydia the purple seller. The whole church of Philippi is right there connected to her home, which was a home that was large enough to be able to host the, the church of Philippi there. So, so you have these stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you also you just have the stories not only in the Bible, but in your own life. I, this is so consistent in the last 20 years of ministry. Some of the most selfless, sacrificial, Christ-centered people that I know individually and in their families have been people uh, oftentimes of tremendous wealth but their wealth has not confined them, their wealth has not defined them, and they, 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 they hold onto it loosely and give generously. So you know those people, I know those people. So Jesus, in this passage, is not calling us to follow and to think that salvation comes through poverty alone. Jesus is looking at this man and specifically speaking to his God, his allegiance is here. 
He is saying that you, you, you've kept the letter of the law, but you're still far from me. You're holding on to your possessions, and your possessions have occupied the place of God in your life here. And Jesus still, he still has spiritual x-ray vision that, that peers into your heart. It peers into my heart. And it very well may be that, that we're not bowing down to the siren song of possessions in our life, but it's power. Sometimes it's position. Sometimes it's a person. Who, who holds this unhealthy relationship in our life and the good things of life, the passions of our life, we elevate them to where they're not good, but they become a God in our life. And it's at that point that Jesus looks into our heart. He says, what, what are you holding on to? What are you clinging in? What are you trusting in? Where are you finding your worth? For this man, it was his possessions that have possessed him and Jesus calls him to leave them behind. It isn't as if this man never has possessions again. This isn't the possessions that are the problem. It's his relationship to the possessions. It's not a person that is the problem. It's our relationship to the person. It's not a position that is the problem. It's our relationship. At times we can hold it too closely and it obstructs our view of God and we're not able to love it in its proper place. There have been three questions in my life. I, I mean, there could be 33 questions. But these three questions have been helpful to me. As I reflected upon this passage, the first question is, when I'm trying to identify, where am I falsely putting my worth? Where am I falsely putting my identity? What am I holding on to closely? At times, what I'm worrying about and who I'm worrying about reveals unhealthy clinging to good things that I've elevated to the status of God. What am I worrying about? Secondly, and this needs to be taken in conjunction to be able to identify these places in our life, but secondly, where do I, where do you find jealousy and envy arising most often in your life? When you scan friends and people, acquaintances, people that you work with, at times, is it, is it jealousy and envy, does it come around uh, others' appearance? Does it come around others' achievements? Does it come around others' intellect? Does it come around other people's homes or vacations or vehicle? You know, all of these things could identify a place that we're putting our identity, putting our worth. And the final question is, is where do you feel the most wronged and most often overlooked where are those places that, that birth the most resentment in your life? It could be that these are the places that have an unhealthy position of priority in your life that Jesus is calling you today to put in its proper place. I think it's helpful, uh, at least for me. It's, it's, it's not really helpful to leave this at 30,000 feet. But just two places of good things, because I, I don't think the majority of people in the sanctuary watching via live stream, yes, there are siren songs of sin that call us to find our identity in pursuits that we know are dishonorable to God. But Satan is so strategic, and he is so sinister, that the majority of idolatry that you will be tempted to and that I will be tempted to are good things that we're making into ultimate things. They're good things 
that we're placing our entire identity and worth in, and they cannot sustain, they cannot carry the weight of that. So one example is our family. I mean, there's nothing, I mean this is a God-given gift to us. But think what happens when we find our worth solely in our family, when we find our worth solely in our family as a mother-in-law or a father-in-law or a father or a mother, when we find our identity solely in our worth as a husband or a, a wife in the family, when we find our identity there, what, what ends up happening in that moment? Well, the achievements of others in our family circle, when they're up, up, and away, our worth is up, up, and away. But when there's tragedy or failure, we too closely identify our worth with that family member there, and it's just, it is this hellish cycle of self-worth and self-pity, frustration and resentment and boast. It is high, low, high, low, high, low, because it's wholly conditioned upon people's performance. And so family, which is good, when we make it ultimate, we hold on to it so closely that we feel that we have to be God. Which means we've got to control. We have got to micromanage. Always in the name of love. Always in the name of concern. But when we get down to it and we, and we penetrate that, that veneer of love and that veneer of concern, it's really not, if we're going to be honest, about the other person, but it has a whole lot more to do with us. And what we think we have to control. So manipulation and control, it begins to rear its head in something that really is good but it was never intended to be your God. We're just thinking about career. I mean, we could go down a long list. Your career is a great thing. I mean, you're passionate about it. You love it. You feel called to it. But the thing about a career, when we make it our ultimate worth and our ultimate identity, we begin to notice there's, there's no proper way for us to really ever actually disconnect. We find that the success of our branch or the success of our company or the success of our management team or the success of whatever it is, is wholly dependent, you feel, on you and you alone. So what happens is when there are others that do well, you, you have a real difficult time applauding because anyone else's success seems to be a threat to the light on you. And then when your career becomes your identity and financial difficulties of 2008 hit, or COVID-19 hit, there begins to be when that career isn't sustainable. It at that point becomes, who am I? It's a sinking boat. But it was never intended to be your identity, your worth. We could go down the list, but I think you get the point. Where 
are you finding your worth? Who are you? That's a question that a rich young ruler had to answer 2,000 years ago. And don't think that we don't have to answer it today. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you realizing that there are many, many good things in our life that, that we're tempted to exalt to a place that only you can have in our life. I don't know if there's any person that's immune to this. None of us are immune because we're all sinners who fall short of you and the glory of God. So help us to pause and even to reflect this very morning on where we find our worth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.